back to the Craft and Career podcast series, featuring conversations with professional creatives from the arts, entertainment, and media industries. Here, we can explore various approaches to craft and career, and even consider how those two can sometimes work together. I'm Derek Webster, Senior Associate Director for Creative Careers at Yale's Office of Career Strategy, and I'm excited to welcome back our guest, designer Matthew Claudel, Yale Class of 15, architect and founder of the civic design firm Field States. It's great to continue this conversation with you, Matthew. So um, picking up um, from where we left off before, I wanted to maybe parse through a little bit more of your background and specific elements there. Um, you gave us like a really great sense of like what, how defining craft is sort of being the, you know, the what, and then the, uh, sorry, the, the, the career is being the what and the craft is being the how, but your specific take on um, your background. I was wondering if you could highlight not just your bio, but walk us through a bit more organically, you know, what you're doing, you, you know, what you're picking up, how, 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 what got you there in the, the three or four major steps along the way. Could you give us kind of the distillation of that, particularly because we might have some listeners that are coming directly into this episode? Sure. Um, so I studied architecture at Yale. Actually, no, I can, I can go further back than that. Um, I, began my career at Yale thinking I was going to be a writer and oh, nice. really interested in, in literature and English. And in fact, throughout the time, throughout my, my undergrad, I always took English classes in part because they're a terrific opportunity to, to read, you know, you, you get to call it classwork, but <laughs> to read good novels. Um, I loved the American novel since 1945. It was an incredible class and, and the, the essay writing classes. I mean, it, I think it's just terrific. And the reason I bring it up is that my approach has always been grounded in writing. I've had the, the challenge and the, the joy of writing a couple of books. I did a PhD and that is a lot of writing. Fortunately, it's something I enjoy and it's something I, I learned how to do, um, how to do pretty well at Yale. So having that, that kind of as a foundation point was also very fundamental to how I approached architecture. The great thing about the architecture major is that you really are pushed to develop a distinctive approach to this, this problem. And I'll get, I'll get more into that in just a second, but everyone kind of has their own fingerprints on their projects. And eventually over the course of the studio, you come to recognize your colleagues work, you know, well, that's a kind of project that could only have been designed by this person. And my particular approach was really building on that interest in, in literature. I remember a really touchstone moment when I, I went to a lecture by Emmanuel Petit, which was about Rem Kuhas, who himself was a journalist and who created this project called Voluntary Prisoners of Architecture. And it was this incredible, like, kind of social critique as built form and, and very much this narrative, the storytelling. Rem Kuhas was very inspiring to me as someone who is telling a story as much as designing a building. So I approached my own architecture voice in that, in very much that way. I ended up doing two senior thesis projects, one of which was in the design track and one which was um, history, theory, and criticism, and got a chance to just think about uh, my, my work was focused on um, space and time in Japanese architecture. So I've got to think kind of on this philosophical literary mm -hmm. level. And many years later, actually, 
I had the, the opportunity to do some work with Rem Kuhas. So it was this moment of oh, sort wow. of meeting your heroes. Yeah. It was a, a project I was helping to design through the Sensible City Lab at MIT where I was working. And we were involved with Venice Biennale, which is sort of the, the Olympics of architecture and design. Um, every country sends a or has a pavilion that they design. And then there's a central pavilion. And the project I was working on was part of the central pavilion. And so it was, it was an incredible moment where I got to spend some time with Rem Kuas and learn from him and, and be part of the, uh, I guess, the, the massive critique and provocation to the discipline that he was building through the, the Venice Biennale. But to, to answer your question was, was a little bit more about my trajectory, I suppose. I've always been flexible and always been interested in following what feels right at the moment. I've always been interested in pushing myself to learn new things and enter new spaces where I am a little bit uncomfortable and to think about problems that are very complex and to try and do so in a way that's that has integrity and is focused on really achieving some of the goals I have with environmental sustainability and, and social equity and design. And to do things, you know, make things and think of things and design systems that are that are elegant and beautiful. That's one of my my real goals. It's not always easy. Yeah, but it, it seems like a yeah a, a, a healthy through line to have if you're going to choose a through line. It seems like a, a healthy and, and charitable through, through line in a lot of ways. So we we touched on this a little bit before, and we kind of scratched the surface on your involvement with DesignX and Sensible City, and you could probably even go back to Yale and some of the makerspace you know engagements you've had there. Can you tell us more about the importance of that kind of collaborative, creative space? What has continually drawn you to those kinds of spaces, and how important that is, you know, to add to and facilitate the ability for others to work creatively? Because I think that's an undervalued concept. So for, you know, for some artists, it's such an individual engagement artistically. And it sounds like, and it seems like you've been involved in a lot of facilitation of shared creativity or expanding the opportunity for others to be creative. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit more about how that's important and what keeps you coming back to opening up those, those portals for others? Absolutely. I have always been really interested in collaboration have always been wary of this idea of the, the single author who's graced with divine inspiration or whatever it is. I, I think that there's so much in this world and there's a narrative that is underplayed, which is really about collaboration. And that can be collaboration across different skill sets and, and diverse sort of approaches to things. It's also interestingly collaboration across time. And that was what I, I spent some time working on with um, a, the book I wrote called Open Source Architecture, this idea of sort of a vernacular approach to, to building and to sort of evolving the built form, learning from how someone has done it before, sort of tweaking it and, and building something. And then someone subsequently will come along and and learn from what you did and tweak it again. And I think that's kind of a collaboration across time. So I've always been fascinated with this idea of collaboration. And I've been motivated to set up alternative spaces for collaboration because one of the things, one of my pet peeves, and it happens often, is to be talking to someone and hear them say, well, I'm not a creative person. My wife is an artist. She's an incredible painter. And so, you know, she ends up in these conversations with people. She says, I'm a painter. And they say, oh, that's amazing. I would love to see your paintings. I'm, I'm not creative. I've never painted. And it frustrates me because I think anything 
any, any field is something you can approach with creativity. And it's only by approaching it with creativity that we're going to come up with new ways of doing things that are going to be better for the world, whether it's the environment or, or uh, social equity or thinking of new ways to finance, let's say, green infrastructure in cities, which is incredibly difficult to do. And I think we need people who are mired in political bureaucracy at the city level who think creatively about the work that they're doing so that we can deliver ecosystem services and, and plant more trees. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but... Yeah. I really believe that approaching work with creativity is important. And to have spaces to do that is of fundamental importance. There's a whole literature on um, socio-technical systems that, that contemplates this idea of niches that sort of ferment or incubate alternative ideas and what and explores what the pathways are for those to have landscape-wide impact, really systemic impact. And one of my sort of motivations throughout my career, I suppose, has been to create those niches and to give them a bit of energy and to to spark people to think of themselves as creative and and think of themselves as one agent in transforming larger systems. Yeah, that, that's both interesting and also piques a question uh, that I've always had. And, uh, you know, I, I think you'd be a great person to answer it. I work with architects often and through our office and we we consider architecture and urban design to be a creative career, right? We just I just do. <laughs> um, but I've had conversations where people have said like, well, architecture is not an art. Architecture is it's engineering. It's 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 it's, you know, and, and I, it, it could even be a whole question about where where to draw the line in design and what one means by design. But do you think that some of that question of like the architectural pursuit, not always having the room or the ownership of creativity has something to do with why there's a pushback or a, a, an unwillingness always to sort of allow the creativity to breathe with new ways of doing things or new approaches. What do you, what do you think about that? That's a, that's a great point. And I think it's a problem in the discipline. In our, our previous session, I mentioned Peggy Deemer, who's a brilliant thinker and who has really engaged with the architectural discipline and pedagogy and, and what it means to be a practitioner of architecture. And one of the things I've learned from her is that, you know, we need to think differently about how we consider this profession, how we compensate it, and how we consider creativity as a fundamental element of the architect. And in many ways, there's this friction between architectural pedagogy and architectural practice. In school and in studio, you're told that you're going to be the next Michel Rajkind. You're told that you're going to be the next Zaha Hadid. And the projects are really about building the story and building something beautiful and making something very distinctive. You know, the, the iconic project for studios like design a, an opera house or something. There's so few people who get to design opera houses <laughs> and there are so few people who come up with a sketch of what that thing will, is going to look like. And so I believe it's somewhat problematic when you go through your education, you do all this and then you end up picking up red lines on giant CAD models and basically just measuring out window details. And that can be an incredibly disillusioning moment in, in the career of an architect. I will say, though, that I stand behind what I, what I just mentioned, that anyone can approach what they're doing with creativity. And some have, for example, continuing this idea of you know, the, the drudgery of 
architectural practice in many cases, there, there were some folks there who looked at the process of manufacturing individual custom pieces. Um, I'm thinking of the basketball stadium in New York, maybe Barclay Stadium, I'm forgetting the project. But in any case, there's this incredible facade that has thousands and thousands of pieces and each one is unique. And to approach that problem conventionally would be to say, we're going to have a lot of low paid architects, entry level people sort of managing each one of these components. And instead, what they did was design an application, a sort of digital platform that, that managed and tracked individual components in a, a sort of algorithmically designed facade. And that's that's an approach to a conventional problem that I find really creative. And it's an example of transforming the problem in the field and, and approaching it with creativity. Yeah. What do you think about sort of the, the opposite side in our audience or other creatives, you know, visual artists, filmmakers that might feel so as an example, um, in open source architecture that you co-authored, I think you mentioned something and you talked about it a little bit before this. I think you said like uh, Starkitex, like the idea of these luminaries, almost like you can think of it in the film tradition of being an auteur theory. Right. So and, the, and that that somehow can get in the way of this open source version of actually everyone can be involved and you're actually picking it iterative along the way and picking it up. And, and, and there's new new approaches and, and new ways of making it more accessible. How would you talk down? someone who creatively like is so individualized in, in their practice that would feel like somehow that that's discounting or discontinuing what many are seeking is the idea of self-expression and ownership over a final product and that sort of thing. What, what kind of a dialogue, have you had those kinds of dialogues in the past? Yeah, I have. And I, I've explored those problems. I think I would say, don't take yourself so seriously. And, uh, and also you need to be practical at some point. That is to say, though, that there are some really exciting new directions in the discipline with crowdfunding, for example. In so many ways, the architecture profession is sort of, uh, I think, shackled by the client and the developer and this long, long chain that goes from the sketch pad to the built form. And in so many cases, a beautiful sketch gets kind of massaged into the blandest box by the time it ends up built. And there are ways of, of tightening that loop, digital assembly and fabrication. There are obviously new approaches to engineering to make these wild ideas actually stand. But the more interesting piece to me is alternative financing and how a project can actually sort of disintermediate from the financier and the developer who have these incredibly conservative risk models that end up constraining architectural expression and, and really aligning the future demand with the design as it stands. And so when we have a more kind of tight link between the end user and the designer through direct financing or through collaborative design processes, I think we'll end up with a really exciting form of architecture. And, and this isn't to say that, you know, we should crowdfund every building because I don't think that's a good strategy for, for equity. And I don't think it's a, I mean, well, we should, we should put that in a, a smaller box than it might sound like I'm implying. I think it's an interesting tool that can be used in certain cases, but, but really focusing on the design process and making it more collaborative and focusing on the financing streams and making those more, more direct and um, rethink the models for that is going to be an interesting new direction for the, the architectural discipline. Yeah. That speaks back a bit to what you were saying, where the creativity doesn't just have to be on the practice side, right? Like the creativity can be in all the many of the framing and supporting and, and other mechanisms along the way. Thinking creatively doesn't just have to be on paper or in design. Um, mm -hmm. That's really helpful to, to open that up.
So your background and all the many engagements that you've had along the way, you're designing, you've been involved in architecture, you've been involved in urban planning. As you mentioned, a lot of it is actually literary and, you know, based on writing and being inspired in those directions. You've even, you know, done teaching and, and you know, been facilitator for these centers and, 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 and those sorts of things. Though it might not be fair, I guess I should ask, which of these do you feel is the base that you build the other ones around? Or, or you might not, but like, what are your thoughts in, when you, when, when you're trying to compartmentalize, like, who am I as a creative? Well, that's a great question. Um, I, my gut reaction is to say, no, I, <laughs> I want to do all of them. Um, but in, in all seriousness, I, I think that having many different engagements keeps you fresh. And, and I always see that there's crossover between them. Having a foot in academia, for example, introduces rigor and it's an opportunity to explore pure ideas. And having a foot in practice is, you know, in, in some cases you run up against walls that you don't in academia, you know, people saying, well, you know, the, the, the numbers you just aren't going to pan out. So we can't pursue that idea that in theory is, is quite beautiful. But you're always seeing these back and forth and you're always seeing these different approaches learn from each other. So to be more succinct, I, I really like having a foot in academia. I'm currently affiliate faculty at Portland State University, and that opens doors to, to both theoretical work, but, but really applied research. And pursuing this technology company to put together solar microgrids is really about the implementation side. But for me, what would be at the center of it, to answer your question, is my design practice because it is strategic design and, and it's an opportunity for me to have some degree of, of ownership and to be able to decide which projects I think are meaningful and to be able to pursue them with, with partners and collaborators. And I think that there is much more room in this world for small creative practices that, that produce things, but also produce new ideas. And I feel very fortunate that I can use my, my time to be developing that kind of practice. And I, I really think the world will be a better place if more people do that. And I'll also mention, I made the decision to incorporate that company as a benefit company. And that introduces um, a, a degree of accountability. We have to disclose sort of what our mission is and why we're doing what we're doing. We have to evaluate ourselves and we have to be evaluated from the exterior. And I think that's really important. You mentioned a community of practice. And for me, building a community of practice is not only something that's important for inspiration, it's something that's important for learning from people and pursuing projects together. It's also important for accountability. Only when you're surrounded by people are you constantly reminded, well, the work that I do actually ripples outward and it, and it impacts people, whether it's locally or, or the collaborators you work with. That's both inspiring and really does feel directly from a lot of the other aspects that you have mentioned, you know, what's gotten you here, what sort of, you know, built your story along the way. Is there anything else that uh, we should know about your practice, about your career, about advice that you'd want to share with, with our audience? Anything else you want to add? I would just reemphasize that it's important to know why you're doing what you're doing, but always be flexible to doing something different as long as you're still following that why. And I've had the opportunity, I think the challenge and the joy this past year, especially of thinking deeply about what kinds of impact I want to have in the world. And I don't want to sound moralizing at all because I'm in this journey. You know, I've, I've really been asking that genuinely as a question. And I think it's been a wonderful opportunity for me. I've learned a lot and it's been a good way of orienting what I do with my career and my craft, so to speak. This has been such a pleasure. Um, I, I love the anecdote you gave us about how 
all of this started just with a fateful taxi ride. I think that's both inspiring and also like, you know, we're, we're each looking for our taxi ride along the way that's going to start up the journey. So it, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate your involvement. Thank you so much, Derek. Yeah, it's really been a joy. Thank you for, for this great conversation. Thanks again, Matthew. And thanks to all of you out there tuning in to the Craft and Career Podcast. Come back next week for the first installment of our conversation with Zoe Hunter, Managing Director and all-around entrepreneurial creative at Yale Tsai City Center for Innovative Thinking. Until then, as always, don't be afraid to use the word career, but always stay crafty.